You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri. And this is Seba Hassan. How are you doing, my dear friend? I know you've had quite the week. So do you want to share a little bit? It wasn't a fun week. So what's going on? <laughs> um, so you know how your parents come over and they'll say things like, oh, my knees are hurting, my shoulder's hurting, or I have back pain, or I'm not sleeping well, or, you know, whatever they start talking about. Um, my dad came for dinner last Thursday and just for what it's worth my parents are both vaccinated my husband and I are vaccinated so they came over and my dad's like oh yeah like last night I woke up with chest pain and it was so bad and I was trying to find this like there's this Pakistani naturopathic thing and he was trying to find that um, and he couldn't so he's like taking acid medication and stuff to try to help it I need three pillows otherwise I can't breathe I'm seeing him get short of breath walking from the couch to the dining table which is not that far away which is maybe 10 20 feet and uh, I was like daddy I'm pretty sure that's a heart attack <laughs> Oh, <laughs> he was like, no. oh, no, no, it's just, you know, I have reflux and bloating when I eat and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't eat when you woke up from chest pain. Like, that's like a cardinal sign. So he's like, oh, yeah, I'll take care of it. I'll see the cardiologist after I come back from Houston because he was going to get on a plane on Friday oh, and go no. out of town with my mom to visit other relatives who were vaccinated. And I was like, you're not going anywhere until we call mm -hmm. cardiology. So I called a cardiologist friend who was amazing. He's on vacation and he arranged for my dad to have an emergency admission and in fact had significant blockage in the main artery of his heart. So they went in and they put a stent on Saturday and Alhamdulillah, he's doing a lot better, but it's just kind of the same thing, you know, like, oh, I don't know if I need to do this and why do I need to change my diet? Like, I don't understand, blah, blah, blah. I've never had, I don't have high blood. It's like, no, daddy, do you understand what clogs the arteries? It's like all that salt that you basically unload on everything. Like he, any recipe, if there's sugar, he doubles it. Any recipe that's salt, he doubles it. Like our whole life, he's been like that. And I'm like, it finally caught up to you, daddy. 74 is pretty good. But okay, so let's, how is he doing right now? Let's do that. Let's talk about no, that. No, he's right good, Alhamdulillah. Okay. He's still having some pain um, because stents do get blocked. Um, but he went into the cardiologist and they said, no, it looks good. Uh, we're just going to change some medication. And Alhamdulillah, he's healthy. He's happy. But he's not flying anywhere for four weeks, according to the I, I was going to say, he better not be getting on a plane at Houston anytime soon. No, no, exactly. He's not going anywhere. So, And really, it was he wanted to get away because he was like, I'm just, I'm, I feel so trapped in the house. Like, I just wanted to get out and Aww. have a change. And I was like, like, all right, just come to my house and hang out with the kids. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to leave the house, but not come to your house. And yeah, I he's, not that bored. <laughs> he's not that bored. He's not that bored. He doesn't bored. want to do that. Yeah, That's no. so funny. Oh but Alhamdulillah, well. he's doing well. So please remember him in your dua and tell me that your week was better. First of all, I wanted to go back to your dad's story. The fact that you were able to diagnose him while you guys were eating dinner. I am so proud to know you and kudos for that. So the fact that we all, she's diagnosing her dad at dinner. I'm, I'm trying to feed my kids dinner, writing a 12 page research paper. I am too old to be writing <laughs> research papers. You're not. I'm, 
I'm feeling like my brain stops functioning at like three and I'm sitting here writing this paper like, am I writing the same line over and over again? So we moms can get it done. And so I'm super proud of both of us. Glad that uncle is doing well, but I am really interested uh, to hear about what your soapbox is going to be today. I kind of have a feeling about what it's going to be. So Uzma, what is our soapbox for today? So um, I feel like what's trending right now is end Asian violence ever since the uh, shooting at Atlanta by a white man uh, who shot eight people in a nail salon Mm -hmm. uh, targeting Asian Americans. And interestingly enough, since then, we have had two copycats in less than a week. And I'm not, this is just the two that I found. I know that there's more going on. Uh, but these two uh, were significant because... Uh, they're happening against old people. And you guys know how I feel about old people, all right? So on one of them, I think it was uh, March 12th, an elderly Asian lady was knocked unconscious. Basically, a white guy came and spat on her face and then punched her. So she fell on the back of her head, and that, that impact on the ground is what made her lose consciousness. And this was somebody who had been um, sheltering and social distance because of the coronavirus, and she finally felt safe going outside again. And then she gets attacked by a white dude, mm -hmm. whose motives, according to the police department, are not clear. Um, less than a week later in San Francisco, I hope you guys saw this, but 76-year-old grandma who uh, was attacked on Market Street, which is a very busy street if anybody's mm -hmm. been to San Francisco and seen that a white guy comes up and attacks her. And oh, by the way, a couple of hours earlier, he had also beat up another elderly Asian person. Um, and he was beating her to the ground. And look at grandma. She picked up a two by four. And I don't know, I've never seen two by fours lying randomly in San Francisco, but maybe I don't pay attention. <laughs> she picked it up and whacked him so bad. He was on a stretcher. She's meanwhile got two swollen eyes from the beating she's received. She's not on a stretcher. And she's just screaming in Cantonese like he was bullying me. He hit me for no reason. So again, San Francisco PD is unsure of this guy's motives who beat up two Asian elderly people. Uh, 169, 176. And then, oh, less than a week. Uh, this, these are a week apart. And in the middle, a 59-year-old man in San Francisco is also attacked from behind while he's walking. Again, after sheltering for so long, he finally feels safe to go out, gets attacked from behind, knocked unconscious, and beaten to, until the uh, bones are broken in his face. Mm -hmm. We'll have these links for the articles in our show notes. For all of the police departments and uh, state attorney generals who are unsure about why these attacks are happening, is a terrorist only a certain color or a certain race? Like, what's wrong with you guys that you're not calling a hate crime a hate crime? I feel like as moms, our job is to revisit our state laws and to really specify, um, actually don't specify, make it broader what a hate crime is. You don't have to come to somebody and say, I'm hitting you because you're black or I'm attacking you because you're Asian. You put your hands on them. That in itself is a hate crime. You are seeing the memes about hate being a virus. It has been in our communities for a very long time. And it's about time that people paid for it. These guys are going to get off. Hate crimes need to be identified. They need to be called as such. And our news and our legislators and our attorney generals need to not be chicken you-know-what about it. Um, my soapbox for today is 
luck you to all of these people or it rhymes with luck you because you need to call a chicken a chicken or a duck a duck and then you shoot it down because it's not going to stop until we set a precedent for proper punishment, proper prosecution, appropriate prosecution for hate crimes. That's our soapbox for today. I always have to just take it all in take it in. And it's, it is a shame right now. And I'm seeing a lot of not only, um, and Asian violence, but it's more like, and white terrorism. I think that's kind of, um, I'd rather have that be, um, written about because the reality of the situation is these it's, it's getting rampant. It's becoming a little bit, you know, out of control. And that's something that we need to, to be focusing on. So thank you for bringing attention to that. Today, unfortunately, um, today's another day that I'm glad that I'm wearing my waterproof mascara because we're continuing our Firewalker series. But we're turning today away from kids and the worst nightmare of a mom to the nightmare that women go through before they become moms, while they're moms, sometimes after they're moms. Often this continues once they have kids. Most don't even know how to get out of it. Like that's the sad truth of it. If you recall last month, we cited that 10 million cases of adults reporting domestic violence in 2019 that's just in the U.S. That's reporting. That's people actually going out of their way to talk about it, to report it, to record it. So ask ourselves, how many people are not saying anything? How many people are not reporting this? That leaves 5 million kids exposed to household violence again and again. That's what we actually know. Let's take that in. Um, we were talking about domestic violence and abuse today. So if this is a trigger for you, as with all of our other um, episodes this month, please turn this off. Um, you know, you can read about it on a different time when you're in a better stage. But um, Firewalker Mama Madiha Skater is, um, has experience with abuse. Um, she's sadly not a unique case. Um, but this is highly ho- personal, horrifying, and incredibly informative information. She has ag- agreed to provide us a little bit of a glimpse and insight into what it actually looks like. So we are super grateful to have you here today, Madiha, to provide us the education that we all need. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Momming Well Muslim. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you for having me. We are super excited and super honored that you're sharing something so personal with us, but we always like to kick off by asking a little bit about your mom's story and your momming philosophy. Um, well, I think I was, I was 24 when I had my son and uh, I think I wanted a baby maybe in my teenage. (laughs) I I literally loved kids so much. I would go and get all the neighborhood kids in my house. (laughs) Um, anyway, his, uh, his birth was what I was waiting for when you're in a, position in a marriage where I was, that was the hope. Like, I'll have something and Mm -hmm. I'll have somebody. And um, um, I have a son. And then I have 10 years later on my second marriage, I have twins, Mm -hmm. which were miraculously somehow conceived. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, and... um, I think the, the for me the best thing I could have done and uh, my mommy theory is uh, they're everything. 
they're pretty much everything. And I, even if I do anything on my own, there is a guilt involved because they are not there. And my son, a lot of times will tell me, Ma, what is this? Like, you can have fun without us. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I want everyone. But anyway, uh, yeah. And the motivation comes from them to do things in life. That's beautiful. I love that that works for you. I it, personally it have a no problem being away from my kids. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Like, I don't yeah. know why. So can you tell us a little bit about your family of origin, only the parts that you're comfortable discussing? Uh, so I came from a military family. So my dad, my grandfather, and now my um, brother is in the military. We traveled all over Pakistan. Uh, if you ask me where I'm from, from I can't tell you. Because right. <laughs> everyone was an immigrant and everyone started a job somewhere when they moved from India. So um, I was one of those kids that didn't have any village. <laughs> you know how embarrassing in Pakistan it is to not have a yeah. village? It is very embarrassing. Because when they talk about their village, you're sitting over there going, ah. <laughs> so, Where do I yeah, both parents, uh, their families were immigrants and settled after they retired, wherever they wanted to be. So I have a family all over Pakistan, and um, I have uh, three brothers, and I'm the only sister. And uh, I got married when I was 21, right out of college. So, yeah. Fresh, fresh. That's right. Yeah. That was goals 20 years ago for all of us, right? Get married really young. Get Zabo married. accomplished. No, that. I, I did not. I knew that my dad wouldn't send me to college. Oh. Yeah. Because I was always uh, um, in a girls' college, girls, all girls' school, never co ed. Mm-hmm. And college meant co ed. Mm hmm. So he let me work after I finished college, but it had to be a school where all teachers were girls. So I knew I had this, like, you know, and then um, I think I wanted to get married and find freedom. I thought I wanted to get married. Yes. I would say that 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 idea was in my mind. That's yeah. that's that's interesting. And I would imagine that a lot of people um, in our demographic at that time did that, like to escape yeah. one house, they would go to another house. And quite frankly, it wasn't necessarily an escape, right? So, and you had, no. you were talking a little bit, Madiha, and, and I, I see a lot of myself in you where you feel anxious and stuff when your kids are not with you. And a lot of the times a psychologist would probably have to say it's, it's because of the things that had happened to you. So when they're not necessarily in front of you, yeah. you're feeling that anxiety, that under level thing. And so like, I definitely can relate to that, but um, we're, we're talking a little bit and we're alluding to your, um, your, your marriage and how that started. And you did just say, you know, I left my dad's house and I thought I was going and getting my freedom and gaining, you know, gaining that independence with your husband, but it sounds like that that didn't quite happen. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that journey and how you went from one kind of prison into a different type of prison? Yeah, so 
I think um, I used to tell my mom, I think I was maybe 15. The only time I had a fight with my mom, actually. And so she would tell me what to wear that my dad would approve. So you're doing everything to his approval. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a bad guy. That's not what this is. He was a very strict guy. He had these rules that you had to follow. And secondly, he was an army officer. They all do. And I remember having this fight and I said to my mom, am I marrying Hitler? Not to Ooh. offend anyone, literally. But that was my point of view that is he going to let me breathe? Because it sounds like you're training me to be subservient to somebody else. I don't think there's more people like this. So no, I won't. And they say that uh, whatever you're manifesting or thinking will happen. And I guess that was talked about so much that exactly that thing happened to me. Mm. And uh, so I I was 21. I got married. And literally a day after my Valima, I knew I married the wrong person. Mm. So it was that fast. Like I knew that, oh, my God. And then a week later, I realized that uh, I cannot love him because of, you know, there is physical abuse, but then there is that mental abuse, that mental abuse of those words that will stay with you forever. And um, yeah, um, it hit me really fast. You know, I didn't have that lovey-dovey start at least so um but my mom used to say that it'll come or give him everything he he wants Mm -hmm. and he will eventually be yours and he will change and men are like this in the first few years of marriage they are testing their women Mm -mm. and i used to say why why because i'm not testing anyone you know, I'm. A, why am I in a test run and he's not? But I think that Pakistani auntie and mama theory is a lot of time that that uh, I had a talk with my grandmother. My grandmother said the same thing. He's testing you. you he'll be fine. And I'm like, okay, I guess. I haven't so, heard that. I've certainly heard love will come. Yeah. Because uh, I'm a product of an arranged marriage too, and you know, in my case, love did come, but I'm not um, really understanding. Like, a valima is typically like the second day, uh, traditionally, uh, if not the same day of your marriage. So that's really soon. That's I'm really curious soon. about what it was that he said or what it was he did that made you realize, whoops. So, um, you know how Pakistan is. You have so many servants for everything. Right. So I was a daughter of a brigadier. We have like seven, eight servants at home. And you're used to it. In Pakistan, right. you're so used to it. So day after my Valima, because uh, I was in a hotel on my wedding night. So day after my Valima, I woke up. And you know how you have all these relatives who come and to meet the new bride and spend some time with her. So they were all downstairs at breakfast time. So I got really, really quickly ready. And you know, the bride has to look cute. 
She has to wear makeup, her new jewelry, her new clothes. I got ready as fast as I could. And I went downstairs. So I hear him call me from upstairs and I'm like, oh, maybe he needs something. So I went back upstairs. And I, he, I went into the room and he said, you didn't make your bed. And I had to take a double take of what? He goes, you didn't make a bed. And if you're not going to make a bed in the morning, you can go downstairs and go to your parents' house. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I thought, oh my God, that's my worth. Like my worth is so low that if I don't make a bed, he will kick me out of the house. Mm -hmm. And this is like second day. This should be a honeymoon period. It doesn't matter if I made my bed or not. There is a lady working at home right now. She'll go to my room and make bed because you're used to it in Pakistan. Right. And that could be said very nicely also. Right. You know, so the words were like, they hit me really hard, really fast. Maybe I was oversensitive. I have no idea. But that wasn't my worth that you just say, you know, go down. You're done. So he literally said that. And I think 50% of the respect was gone that day. Like, literally gone. Like, why would he say he wants me to leave the second day of my Valima? It, it, it just sounds so rude. Um, so anyway, yeah. So I went, I made the bed. and went into the bathroom, cried a little bit. Because I had this, like, flashbacks of things happening. And... Um, then it was fine for a few days, and I think a week later is the first time he was uh, jealous of somebody. So that jealousy part started. And after the jealousy part, I could not have loved him ever. Interesting. Very sad, but I could not have loved him ever because uh, for me... In a marriage, trust is the most important thing. So it sounds to me, you know, I, 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 it's harder for me to actually relate for this particular situation because I did not have an arranged marriage and I didn't have all those traditional things that um, I hear all these other people um, having. So I'm, I was blessed to to marry the love of my life and still be with him, even though he drives me nuts because you know COVID, uh, because of COVID, uh, you know, and we're with each other all day long, every day. But um, maybe that's a blessing. It's a you know, it's an insight to what is to come, as he likes to say. But so. So it sounds like to me, you're used to the, the servants. He's expecting you to kind of take place of a potential servant because like now he's saying, okay, you're my wife. Now you have to do this. This is your due diligence. And then it sounded like within a week, he was starting to get or show attributes of jealousy um, and making you feel untrusted. Mm -hmm. So that's, is that fair to say? Okay, great. So at that point, you're starting to feel untrusted. You're feeling, you're not feeling loved. You have, you know, the cultural baggage of your mom and your grandma, it sounds like, because it sounds like, you know, they're be passing down what happened to them down to you. They're saying, oh, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, 
it's not fine. And you're in this situation. And it sounds to me like you said you had your son, your son to kind of get you through and in the hopes of making some parts of it better. I totally get that. Is that, did you feel, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but did you have your son to, to help you get through some of those darker times with your first husband? Uh, no, we waited actually. I had my son three years later. Um, I wanted a baby immediately. Like literally I thought that if I had a child that would make me busy and you know, I'll find love and all that. Um, but, um, he definitely was the focus of escape always. And I was obsessed when he was born. I was hundred percent obsessed. I would say obsessed is a very small word. Actually, my mom used to slap me because I she would sleep with me, and the crib was right next to us, and she would just like hit me from the back, going, "Go to sleep. You're staring at him." No. <laughs> and his hand would come out of the crib, and I would hold Aww. it. Because yeah. his energy, they say that kids are very healing to your body because mm-hmm. their souls are not tainted. Yes. So when you put a kid on your chest, that's why you feel very relaxed because you're connecting to a soul that has not been tainted. So they yeah. that's why they're called angels. And with him, it was like that. It just, the dynamic of my whole life, everything changed when he was born. And I got, I had a purpose after that. For me at that time with no cell phones and no internet connection and all that, uh, he, he became everything, literally. And it's, it's, I've talked to so many moms who would say in domestic violence mm-hmm. or domestic abuse, kids are the reason mm-hmm. we keep going. Well, in your case, before your son was born, you had these three years. Can you describe some of what that abuse or oppression looked like or what, you know, some examples that you're comfortable sharing with us? You know, um, for normal people, a lot of things came very easy with me. I was waiting to get married to maybe get those normal things like drive a car or go out on my own. Um, and when I married him, I remember, um, a month later, we're sitting in the car and I said, why don't you teach me how to, as I was in Pakistan, when I was getting sponsored, he left his job and stayed with me because like he wanted to keep an eye on me. (laughs) That's what I'm going to say. Anyway, so. I asked him, I said, can I, can you teach me how to drive? He said, why? And I said, because when I go to America and you go to work, I'll be driving. And he said, you won't. And I looked at him and I went in a state of shock. I said, why won't I be driving? He goes, you don't need to drive anywhere. Wherever you need to go, I'll take you. Mm -hmm. I said, no, but you will be at work in the morning. And if I need to go do grocery, he said, I'll get you grocery. Mm -hmm. And... By the end of that conversation, I knew that I will not be allowed to go anywhere without his permission. And um, that just, I'd never heard of that 
through my friends at least or aunties or anyone that that much control needed to happen um i had uh, he was so secondly he was so jealous of every man around me like everyone i wanted everyone as well how he thought it was i think i mean i know it's a disease men who have these issues have these issues for a reason and later in my marriage i found out there was a reason for him to be like that but uh, i think those first 3 years were very hard in that capacity that i couldn't come up to have a fresh breath of air i wasn't allowed to go to my mom's for a very long time um and one of the things that just changed the dynamic also in i think it was the first third fourth month of my marriage with him was that uh, my brother went to the army academy he came back home one day and i had not seen him 3 months and me and him are nine and a half months apart mind you oh my gosh <laughs> mind you we are nine and a half months apart yeah. so we're like twins so i i saw him at my mom's house and my ex is dropping me and i run to him you know it's your brother for god's sake and i'm so connected to him and i hug him very tight that night when he picked me up he asked me if it is my real brother because i <laughs> hugged him very sexually sorry oh. my boy <laughs> and i started crying so much that he had to stop the car for me to throw up because i cried so much i was so nauseated by that fact that did you just ruin my relationship my brother because you said something so gross and um i remember for next 24 hours i couldn't sleep i laid in my bathroom and i just cried i'm like who the hell did i just marry what the hell is happening to me and um uh, i remember going out of the house not even looking out the window cuz i thought if i look out the window he'll say i'm looking at somebody i went to my honeymoon like that and i remember in thailand some waiter complimented oh are you on your honeymoon your wife is so beautiful and i uh, people compliment it's okay and he asked me if he was my long lost boyfriend and i was like dude <laughs> in Thailand. You're like, Dude, yes, I'm on the weekend. I take a flight and I go meet with him and then I come back. I mean, okay, yes, because what <laughs> I I remember that I said, "Dude, are you okay?" My dad didn't let me out of the house. How would I get a boyfriend? <laughs> get a boyfriend and then in Thailand and I time it so good that you choose the restaurant and he's there. Oh my god. So you know, you sent him notes. You sent him notes and said Thailand boyfriend meet me at this time I'm going to be on my honeymoon make sure you say something yes because you, that you'll be there very 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 realistic I am sorry oh my but it God. sounds and it sounds like to me but I'm sorry that you're going through that it's I mean cuz I'm feeling your angst as you're reliving it so I feel badly that we are bringing this up to the surface but whatever you're saying is obviously going to help other people because I think when people think domestic violence they think you know you're wearing the bruises physically on the outside you're hiding it you're 
putting the makeup on you, this, and that's terrible and shameful as well. But there is another type of um, domestic yeah. violence where it's under the surface where you, you can't quite explain it. You're kind of like, wait a second, this doesn't feel right. Like you're saying with your brother, like it's not, this is not a normal situation, but it's very hard because you don't have a physical, a physical bruise, a physical thing that you can show somebody about what's going on. So, you know, and it sounds like this, was this your breaking point when he said this about your brother or what was the one incident where you then said, okay, I'm done. And I don't care what society thinks I'm, I'm done with this situation. Um, I would say that was one of the moments with my brother. There were so many moments in that marriage that just didn't make sense at all. And um, I needed to come up for fresh air kind of a thing in that marriage for years. Um, my marriage being broken after 10 years when everyone found out that we were getting divorced, they were shocked, 100% shocked because I faked it so good mm -hmm. and I made it look like a really good marriage. Mm. And that's what you do if you want to keep the marriage. Mm -hmm. You want to lie through your teeth mm -hmm. and say everything is okay and act like everything is okay. You're, you're supposed to be like, you're bleeding inside. You want to make sure that nobody else knows. I didn't want my mom to know till she came for my son's birth and realized what my marriage was. Till that point, actually, she didn't. So she came for my son's birth and realize what kind of a relationship I was on because she's such an independent woman otherwise. Mm -hmm. Like my mom drives, she has taught so many girls how to drive and my mom swims and she has taught so many women how to swim. She's joined so many clubs, horticultural societies, won awards and you know, she had her independence. She was a housewife but she had her independence and for her to come and see that I can't even go out to a grocery store and buy a tomato, which is like a light away. I can't even walk to that. was shocking to her. And I would sugarcoat it like, oh, I'm pregnant. I don't want to go. Then I said, oh, baby, and blah, blah, blah. And she's noticing all that. And she's understanding. And then she was like, one day she said, it's okay. You're keeping your marriage. Kind of like words like that I don't remember what exactly she said but she understood and uh, she thought it was normal also like I'll change the child is here he'll change kind of a thing and I don't think it ever changes my tipping point came actually after uh, I got diagnosed uh, with lupus so I was in the hospital for a week and, um, you know, my lupus got ignored, like the signs of lupus got ignored for a while. And uh, finally, I was in the hospital. Um, they thought I had leukemia because my counts were so bad. And uh, finally, they found out that it is lupus. So sixth day, I think so. So the seventh day, they discharged me. And uh, first of all, I was in the hospital alone. Nobody came. He came for 15 minutes to visit me every day in the evening and that was it 
my son was hopping from one house to another because he didn't want to keep his son at home. He just didn't want to deal with a three-year-old at all. So he was at my friend's houses. And I remember coming back home with him uh, from the hospital. And he kept saying, this has ruined my life. So I was pregnant. I had to lose that baby because mm. they're going to start chemotherapy on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was literally, I felt like given a death sentence because my count was so bad. I had to start chemo in four days and my whole body was swollen because my kidneys were not working. I couldn't walk mm-hmm. right. I had to come back home and plan how to do because they wanted me to do an abortion because the baby was growing abnormally in me because my counts were bad. And that drive back home was the hardest thing I did because continuously he said, this has ruined my life. Mm -hmm. You are going to ruin my, um, uh, how did he put it? He said that I, this will ruin the quality of his life forever. Mm. And then he said that my parents lied to him. Mm that I had a disease, I, they gave him a diseased girl. <laughs> of course they did. Like, oh my God, it was a part of a big plan. <laughs> anyway, and I remember we had to go to Walgreens to pick up 14 different medications. Oh like gosh. 14 different medications. So he went in Walgreens, I'm in the parking lot. And I remember a DC auntie in my a car right next to me. And I bawlingly cried because I knew that I can't cry in front of him so I Mm -hmm. have to get it out of my system and I remember at that day I was like I gotta leave him I didn't leave him actually after that but that was a very tipping point that this is the day I needed him because what I was going through I didn't even tell him I was going to get chemo because I just didn't want to tell him I was getting chemo because he was already so upset. And I just sat there and I cried and I cried and I cried. And uh, um, when he came in the car and I, you know, was in that position and he saw me crying and he goes, why are you crying? I should be the one who should be crying. And I looked at him and go, you have no sympathy right now? Jesus, hold my hand. He said, is holding hand going to make it better? And I'm like, I don't know. I need somebody. And I remember calling, of course, go home and calling my best friend. I just get it out of my system. And uh, he, I had this respect. He pays bills and he's very good at, you know, he vacations a lot. I've seen the world with him. He loves to go out and eat. He's a very... Like we would go to movies and all that. It was very social. So there was, you know, how we grab on to bad things. Right. Now, sorry, good He's things. He's a good provider. Sorry, yeah. What are you complaining about? So I am, I'm, I concentrate on, I was concentrating on that. And then, of course, when I go home, I have to see my son because my friend was going to bring my son back. So I had to get everything out of my system before he came home. And... Uh, that was one of the tipping points 
But then after that, for next three and a half years, I pretty much every day heard that dialogue. Mm-mm. Pretty much every day. His, he had the normal lifestyle. He did everything he wanted to do. We traveled the same, the house, cleaning, cooking, laundry, ironing. Everything happened on time the way he wanted it to be. Uh, the only thing was I was sick and I was doing mm. it. So it still took me three more years of listening to that. But um, I would say that was the darkest period. And I would say that um, I think my son was absorbed in a way in that time. And he was watching, he was listening. You know, after three and a half years, when he was three and a half and I got sick, and seeing me gain weight, lose weight, lose hair, surgeries, hospitalizations, so many near-death experiences, so many times a 911 call went through, sometimes because of him, sometimes because of health. Like the firefighters actually recognized me, that was bad. Hmm. That was really bad. They would enter, oh, hey, Madia, and I was like, oh, dude, <laughs> no. And uh, I remember I was hurt for a year and a half before my hip replacement. And he kept telling me I'm faking it. So I could not do the household work. (laughs) I had a 500, I had a 5,000 square foot house. And I used to clean it on my own with a hip that was being broken. So I kept Mm -hmm. telling him I can't mop. And he said, yes, you can. You're making excuses. And I said, no, something is wrong with me. And he goes, no, nothing is wrong with you. You just won't, don't want to do it. And I said, why can't I have a maid? And he said, then why did I marry you? Mm-mm. And uh, women don't understand that these words are very abusive. Mm-hmm. Your worth goes down every time you let these words sink in. And I did. Actually, I all I genuinely thought I had no worth. Other than if I clean and cook and he's happy, I have no worth. My tipping point was that a year and a half, I dragged my leg and I traveled 30 states with him on his sabbatical in that pain, crying my lungs out. I'm hurting. Let's go home. And he said, no, we're fine. Just take a take a Tylenol. And I came back uh, and I was going, we were going to California and we reached Quartzsite. And I couldn't get out of my car to go to the bathroom. I looked at my hip and I couldn't send the message, like move. The pain was that bad. I said, I can't get out. So he dragged me out. He said, go to the bathroom. I was hurting so much. I came out of the bathroom. I was crying. I was shaking. And I said, can we go home? I think there's something really wrong with me. But he continued his trip. And we went on that trip. So, and my, he wanted me to go to SeaWorld and all that. And I'm like, dude, I can't walk. Please don't take me. And we came back. We traveled back. That's seven also. Came back home. Did grocery. Next day I had an appointment. And the doctor said, your hip is gone. And I said, no, no, I have sciatica. He goes, your hip is gone, your leg is not moving. So I went to an MRI, 
right from there. And my MRI result came immediately and they said, your femur has collapsed. Oh Literally the, the day I, I mean, the minute I heard that, I realized I'm going to leave him. It is it. I was like, I'm breaking my body and he's not happy. That means there will be no point in my life that I can make this guy happy. So I think that was it. That was it. I wanted to leave him at that point. So that was my decision day that there's nothing I can do to make this guy happy. I'd rather have this pain alone and be my own than to be with him and be in another pain. So like to, just to kind of put it into context, you know, leading up to that point, you're saying he was social and it sounds like you did have the opportunity to make a couple of friends. How were you able to communicate with them safely? And did you ever disclose what you were experiencing with them? I don't know. Yeah, we're very social with the Pakistani community. And I used to talk to my friends every single day. They would ask me to go out for lunches. I would make excuse that my husband comes back at home at lunch and I love doing lunch with him. That's all my excuse was. They said, why don't you start driving? And I said, oh, I had an accident. Every lie possible I could do. Uh, and I'm scared to drive after that. So that was my story and I was sticking to it. And um, none of them ever questioned why I never did anything alone. I attended one baby shower where my friend picked me up and I came back home and my ex said, if the next time you do this, there was a baby shower for God's sake, and you can leave. So after that, I never attended anything on my own. Um, and uh, I would actually do so many baby showers at my home so I could attend it. Aww. Yeah. I've done a lot of baby showers at my home. Yeah. <laughs> of so, so many Pakistani women over here. your social circle. Okay. Yeah. But nobody so, ever picked up this. One friend. Okay. Tell us about that. Only one friend. Not going to name her. And... I remember we were only friends for a week. And she said, do you, want, uh, do you want me to come pick you up? We'll go have lunch. And I said, no, no, I, I can't. My husband comes here home for lunch. She said, okay, I'll come after lunchtime. We'll go ice, have some ice cream. And I said, no, uh, I'm feeling a little down. So she called me the next day again asking me. And then she said, do you not want to go or does he not let you go? And it hit me like a brick, like, oh, my God, there's somebody who knows. Mm -hmm. And I was married to him three years at that point. And so she was the only person that knew. And I would pour it. I used to call her my garbage disposal. <laughs> Give her everything and she's going to dispose it off. It's not going to stay there. And... Um, and she cried a lot. Like, I had some episodes really bad where he kicked me out of the house. And there were some nasty things. He kicked my mom out of the house. He locked my mom in a room for a month, not letting her come out. Like, I would have to take food to her. She wasn't allowed to come out when he was at home. So she, it, she was looking at all that. And she thought that I should leave. I didn't leave at that point also. Like... That's very insulting. And my mom 
was okay with that. She goes, mm -mm. keep your marriage. Keep your marriage. You're sick. Keep your marriage. He's paying your bill. Your insurance is very high. You're going through chemotherapy. Keep your marriage. And I used to cry and cry and cry. And she used to say, there's no way out. Nobody's going to marry you. You're a sick girl. That's what my mom said. I understand where she came from. It's fine. But, uh, and I couldn't go back home. I didn't have enough education to be on my own. And um, at that point, of course, I had a son also. I had to be pushed. Yeah. And I had to be pushed by what he was doing. Um, and then I had the motivation to, of course, uh, raise my son with his father, I guess, which was part of it. And I think my friend, she's still, mashallah, my very close friend, was one of the reasons the next, when she became friend, I was still with him seven years. So those seven years, I had one person. I didn't tell my mom a lot of stuff other than what she was witnessing, of course. But she was the only person I could pour my heart out to. The first person I called when I wanted to leave him was her. I didn't tell my parents actually till he left the house, till I filed for divorce, because I didn't feel like they would support. I knew my mom would ask me to bring him back. So when he left home, is when I called. Uh, I mean, I he didn't actually leave home. I had to get an order of protection. There was an incident. And um, I didn't tell my mom I was alone. I was on a walker because I was recovering from my surgery. And I said, I will wait because she's going to make me go back. And I don't want to go back. I just, just, I was so done. And I didn't want anyone to manipulate me. So I shut down and I only talked to that friend. Uh, actually, two friends, uh, a friend from childhood also that used to live in New York. These two people were the only people I was talking to till the divorce was filed. And uh, I was done. It was a very hard decision to make because I was in a very vulnerable condition. You know, I was still on a walker. I couldn't even do my groceries. So... But I knew I couldn't. I, I just, I, I genuinely knew that there is nothing left here to do, and for me to get that fresh breath of air. And I knew my son was on my side, and um, which was the most affected person actually, because I'm, I, I can take a lot, but he was still a child at that point was very important for him. The women don't realize the people around them, what they're going through. We have this fake side of us that comes out in parties and social gatherings and whatever, and now in social media also. And uh, my hell was my own, I guess I would say. But I was the life of a party. Because I faked it so good. Well, that's that's the truth of it. That's what I feel like a lot of people do do, right? You smile, yeah. you fake it till you make it. You smile, you smile. You kind of mm -hmm. you kind of like, oh, I I have to do this so that people don't know what's going on. And and the reality of the situation as moms of boys specifically, and we have like seven boys between the three of us right now. Mm -hmm. It is very important to make sure the role model that they have 
in front of them yes is the 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 role model that you cuz you're raising somebody else's husband you're raising your a brother Literally. you're raising a friend and guess mm-hmm. what we cannot let that be passed on to the next generation so it's very important for our our boys to see positive role models that, to see their mothers being strong and the fact that you finally decided enough was enough even if you had to get on a walker to walk out that is like kudos to you, Madiha, and we are so grateful for you um, to, to, to be here with us today. And for women, we have the number right now, 1-800-799-SAFE for the National Domestic Abuse Hotline. For You know, uh, domestic abuse comes in so many d- different ways, shapes yeah. and sizes, ladies. So please know you need, we, we talk about it you know, very openly, you need us to help you help you direct to to your resources, we are available by DM. Um, Obviously, we're sharing this story. So people can see it's not about the physical abuse. It's about a mental this is like gaslighting. Isn't this the the word that they're using gaslighting um, to to the extreme? Um, But you know what, you had a happy ending, it sounds like you you left, you started a new life. Um, You have two beautiful girls, um, that are that are your you know your light and you're you're being a good role model to them so i really want to say thank you so much Madiha, for for getting out of that situation and being the person that you are today i mean so on that note if anybody has some uh has a situation that they want to talk about or knows of a situation that they want to talk about dms will get you into contact with Madiha or to um the National Domestic Abuse Hotline or to resources. We'll find your local resources if you don't have the ability to do it or if you're not safe to do it. We promise we will work on the DL to do it and we're happy to connect you to Madiha who so graciously shared this very intimate story, very personal story. And inshallah, if there's one person that was helped and certainly if the telling of the story helped heal you, we're just so grateful and honored to have been a part of it. Thank you so much, Madiha. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks everybody for joining us on another episode of Mommy Well Muslim, and we'll catch you next week. Assalamualaikum. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Mommy Well Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy Wall Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.